Welcome to the True Crime Truckers Podcast. This podcast deals with true crime and subjects such as rape, murder, and sexual assault. This podcast may not be suitable for younger listeners, so listener discretion is advised. So on this episode, I'm doing something completely different than what I had initially planned. I had planned to make another compilation episode titled Hollywood Murders Part 2, but when I started researching this case, I quickly realized that this was one that needed to stand alone. It's the case of a talented young actress who started dating a very violent man, and in the end, their relationship cost her her life. Tonight, on the True Crime Truckers Podcast, I bring you the case of Dominique Dunn. I had three kids. I had uh, two boys and I had a daughter called Dominique. And Dominique was, uh, you know, my only daughter. I worshipped her. And um, she uh, became an actress and uh, almost instantly, I mean, she, Steven Spielberg cast her in Poltergeist. Dominique Ellen Dunn was born November 23, 1959 in Santa Monica, California. The youngest of child Ellen Patrice Dunn, a ranching heiress, and Dominic Dunn, a writer, producer, and an actor. She had two older brothers, Alexander and Griffin. She was also the niece of married novelists John Gregory Dunn and Joanne Dighton. Her godparents were Maria Cooper Janice, daughter of actors Gary Cooper and Veronica Cooper, and producer Martin Manilis. Her parents divorced in 1967. Dunn attended Harvard-Westlake School in Los Angeles, Taft School in Watertown, Connecticut, and Fountain Valley School in Fountain, Colorado. After graduation, she spent a year in Florence, Italy, where she learned Italian. She studied acting at Milton Castella's workshop and appeared in various stage productions, including West Side Story, The Mousetrap, and My Three Angels. Dunn's first role was in 1979 television film Diary of a Teenage Hitchhiker. She then got supporting roles in episodes of popular 1980s television series such as Lou Grant, Heart to Heart, and Fame. Dunn also had a recurring role on the comedy drama television series Breaking Away and appeared in several other television films. 
1981, she was cast in her first feature film, Poltergeist. Dunn portrayed Dana Freeling, the teenage daughter of the couple whose family was terrorized by ghosts. Produced by Steven Spielberg and directed by Toby Hooper, the film opened on June 4, 1982, and went on to gross more than $70 million. This was her only theatrical film appearance before her death. After Poltergeist, she appeared in the final season premiere episode of Chips and the 1982 television film The Shadow Riders, starring Tom Selleck and Sam Elliott. Dunn met John Thomas Sweeney, a sous chef at the restaurant Ma Mason, at a party in 1981. After a few weeks of dating, they moved into a one-bedroom house on Rangeley Avenue in West Hollywood together. The relationship quickly deteriorated because of Sweeney's possessiveness and jealousy. The couple fought frequently, and Sweeney began physically abusing Dunn. According to one account, he yanked handfuls of her hair out by the roots during an argument on August 27, 1982. She fled to her mother's house, where Sweeney showed up and began to bang on the doors and windows, demanding to be let in. Dunn's mother told him to leave and threatened to call the police. A few days later, Dunn returned to their home and continued their relationship. During another argument at the home on September 26, 1982, Sweeney grabbed Dunn by the throat, threw her onto the floor, and began to strangle her. A friend who was staying with the couple heard loud gagging sounds and ran into the room where Dunn was being attacked. Dunn told the friend that Sweeney had tried to kill her, but Sweeney denied the claim and told Dunn to come back to bed. She pretended to comply, but snuck out of the bathroom window instead. When Sweeney heard Dunn start the engine of her car, he ran out and jumped on the car's hood. Dunn stopped the car long enough for Sweeney to jump off the hood and then drove away. For the next few days, she stayed with her mother and at the homes of her friends. She later called Sweeney and ended the relationship. After he moved out, she had the locks changed and moved back into the Rangeley Avenue home. On October 30, 1982, a few weeks after the breakup, Dunn was at her home rehearsing for the miniseries V with actor David Packer when she was speaking to a female friend on the phone. John Sweeney had the operator break into the conversation. Dunn told her friend, Oh God, it's Sweeney. Let me get him off the phone. Ten minutes later, Sweeney showed up. After speaking to him through the locked door, Dunn agreed to speak with him on the porch while Packer remained inside. Outside, the two began to argue. Packer later said he heard smacking sounds, two screams, and a thud. He called police, but was told that Dunn's home was out of their jurisdiction. Packer then phoned a friend and told him if he was found dead, John Sweeney was the killer. Packer left the home through the back entrance, approached the driveway, and saw Sweeney in some nearby bushes kneeling over Dunn. Sweeney told Packer to call the police. When police arrived, Sweeney met them in the driveway with his hands in the air and stated, quote, I killed my girlfriend and I tried to kill myself, unquote. Sweeney later testified that Dunn and he had argued. 
but that he could not remember what happened after the exchange and could only recall being on top of her with his hands around her throat. Dunn was transported to Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, where she was placed on life support because her heart had stopped. She never regained consciousness. Over the following days, doctors performed brain scans that showed that she had no brain activity due to oxygen deprivation. On November 4th, 19 days before her 23rd birthday, her parents removed her from life support and she died later that day. At the request of her mother, her kidneys and heart were donated to transplant recipients. Dunn's funeral was held on November 6th at the Church of the Good Shepherd in Beverly Hills. Her godfather, Martin Manilis, delivered the eulogy. She was buried in Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery. Her Poltergeist co-star, Heather O'Rourke, was later buried there in 1988. Her final television appearance was that of a teenage mother who was a victim of child abuse in an episode of Hill Street Blues titled Requiem for a Hairbag. The episode was filmed on September 27, 1982, the day after Sweeney had physically assaulted Dunn, which left visible bruises on her body and face. She played a teenage mother who was a victim of parental abuse and gives her baby up for adoption out of fear of repeating what her parents had done to her. As she was playing an abused teen on the episode, she required no makeup to create the bruises seen. The episode was dedicated to her in memoriam at the opening credits. Shortly before her death, Dunn was cast as Robin Maxwell in the miniseries V. She died during filming and her role was recast with actress Blair Tefkin. According to the DVD director's commentary by series creator Kenneth Johnson, Dunn appears in the scene in which Maxwell and the others watch the L.A. mothership glide in on the day the visitors first arrive. Her back is all that is seen. The miniseries is dedicated to her. night of Dunn's attack, responding officers found Sweeney standing by Dunn's unconscious body in her driveway. A spokesman for the West Hollywood Sheriff's later told reporters that Sweeney told the officers, quote, I killed my girlfriend. He was immediately arrested and charged with attempted murder. Those charges were dropped after Dunn's death and Sweeney was charged with first-degree murder, to which he pleaded not guilty. Sweeney was later charged with assault with intent to do great bodily harm when he admitted during preliminary trial hearings to the altercation with Dunn that occurred on September 26, 1982. 
the day before she filmed the Hill Street Blues episode in which she appeared with visible bruises. He denied assaulting Dunn, claiming that he was only trying to prevent her from leaving their home. Sweeney's trial began in August of 1983 and was presided over by Judge Burton S. Katz. During the trial, Sweeney took the stand in his own defense. He testified that he had not intended to harm Dunn the night that he arrived at her home. He claimed they had reconciled, were planning on moving back in together, and had daily discussions about getting married and having children. On the night of October 30th, Sweeney said that Dunn had abruptly changed her mind about a reconciliation and had told him that she had been lying to him about getting back together and had been leading him on. At that point, Sweeney said he, quote, just exploded and lunged towards her, unquote. Sweeney claimed to have no recollection of attacking Dunn until he discovered he was on top of her with his hands around her neck. He then realized she was not breathing. Sweeney said he attempted to revive her by making her walk around, but she fell down. He then attempted to give her CPR, which caused Dunn to vomit. Sweeney said that he also vomited, ran into the house, and consumed two bottles of pills in an attempt to kill himself. He returned to the driveway where Dunn was and laid down beside her. He said he then reached into her mouth and pulled her tongue out of her throat, something he had done for his epileptic father in the past. Sweeney's court-appointed attorney, Michael Adelson, said that his client's actions were not premeditated or done with malice. He maintained that Sweeney acted out of the heat of passion provoked by Dunn's alleged deception. Dunn's family disputed Sweeney's claim that she had reconciled with him. They insisted that he went to her home on October 30th to persuade her to change her mind because she had told him their breakup was permanent. The prosecution and police investigators also dismissed Sweeney's version of events as there was no physical evidence that he had consumed pills at the time of his arrest. Upon their arrival, police said they found him to be calm and collected. Deputy Frank DeMillo, the first officer to arrive at the scene, testified that Sweeney told him, quote, Man, I blew it. I killed her. I didn't think I choked her that hard, but I don't know. I just kept on choking her. I just lost my temper and blew it again." Unquote. The medical examiner who performed Dunn's autopsy determined that she had been strangled for at least three minutes. Police and prosecutors dismissed the heat of passion defense as they believed that given the time taken to strangle Dunn, Sweeney had ample amount of time to regain control of his actions which might have saved Dunn's life. To establish a history of Sweeney's violent behavior, the prosecutors called one of Sweeney's ex-girlfriends, Lillian Pierce, to testify. Pierce, who did not testify in the jury's presence at the request of Sweeney's attorney, stated that she and Sweeney had dated on and off from 1977 to 1980. Pierce claimed that during the relationship, Sweeney had assaulted her on ten occasions and that she was hospitalized twice for injuries he inflicted on her. During one such assault, Pierce sustained a perforated eardrum and a collapsed lung. She later suffered a broken nose. During Pierce's testimony, Sweeney became enraged, jumped up from his seat, and ran towards the door leading to the judge's chambers. He was subdued by two bailiffs and four armed guards. Sweeney was then handcuffed to his chair and began to cry. He apologized for the outburst, and Judge Katz accepted the apology. 
Attorney Michael Adelson requested that Judge Catt rule Pierce's testimony inadmissible as it was prejudicial. Judge Katz granted the request, and the jury never learned of Pierce's testimony until after the trial. Katz also refused to allow testimony from Dunn's mother, Ellen Dunn, as well as Dunn's friends, ruling their statements about Sweeney's abusive nature as hearsay. On August 29th, defense attorney Michael Adelson also requested that Judge Katz ruled that evidence was insufficient to try Sweeney on the charge of first-degree murder because no evidence of premeditation or deliberation was found. Judge Katz granted the request and instructed jurors that they were only allowed to consider charges of manslaughter or second-degree murder. Deputy District Attorney Stephen Barshop later said this decision, along with Judge Katz's previous rulings barring the testimony of Sweeney's ex-girlfriend and Dunn's mother and friends, were serious blows to the prosecution's case against Sweeney. On September 21, 1983, after eight days of deliberation, the jury acquitted John Sweeney of second-degree murder, but found him guilty of the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter. He was also convicted of misdemeanor assault for the altercation with Dunn that occurred on September 26, 1982. Dunn's family was outraged by the verdict, calling it an injustice. After Judge Katz excused the jury and told them that justice was served, Dominic Dunn yelled, quote, not for our family, Judge Katz, unquote, before leaving the courtroom. Dominic Dunn accused the Judge Katz of purposely withholding Sweeney's ex-girlfriend's testimony from the jury, which would have helped to establish his violent history with women. Victims for Victims, a victims' rights group established by actress Teresa Saldana, protested the verdicts by staging a march outside the courthouse. Afterwards, several media outlets debated the events of the trial and verdict. Several also criticized Judge Katz's action. One local Los Angeles television station polled viewers who rated Judge Katz as the fourth worst judge in Los Angeles County. On November 7th, Sweeney was sentenced to six years in prison for manslaughter, the maximum sentence he could have received, plus six additional months for the assault charge. At Sweeney's sentencing, Judge Katz criticized the jury's ruling of manslaughter, stating that he felt Dunn's death was, quote, a case of pure and simple murder, murder with malice, unquote. The jury's foreman, Paul Spiegel, later told the media that his fellow jurors and he were surprised by Judge Katz's criticism and called his comment, quote, a cheap shot. Spiegel felt that Judge Katz's criticism stemmed not from their verdict, but from the harsh criticism he received after the verdict was given. Spiegel went on to say that had the jury heard all the evidence, they would have convicted Sweeney of murder. On the advice of Tina Brown, Dominic Dunn kept a journal during the trial. His journal writings were published in an article titled, Justice, a Father's Account of the Trial of His Daughter's Killer, which was featured in the March 1984 issue of Vanity Fair. Judge Burton S. Katz, who presided over the case, transferred to the juvenile court in Slimar, Los Angeles, shortly after the trial. He later admitted that some of his controversial rulings in Dunn's case pained him, but reiterated his belief that Sweeney should have been convicted of murder and given a lengthier sentence. Dominique's mother, Ellen Dunn, founded Justice for Homicide Victims, a victim's rights group, a year after her daughter's death. After the trial, John Sweeney was incarcerated at a medium-security prison in Susanville, California. 
He was released on parole in September of 1986 after having served three years, seven months, and 27 days of his six-and-a-half-year sentence. Three months after his release, Sweeney was hired as the head chef at the Chronicle, an upscale restaurant in Santa Monica, California. Dunn's brother Griffin and her mother Lenny found out where Sweeney was working and began handing out flyers to patrons that read, quote, The food that you will eat tonight is cooked by the hands that killed Dominique Dunn, unquote. Sweeney eventually quit his job due to the protest from Dunn's family and moved away from Los Angeles. In mid-1990s, Dominic Dunn was contacted by a Florida doctor who had read an article Dunn wrote about Dominique's death. The doctor told Dunn that his daughter had recently become engaged to a chef named John Sweeney and wondered if it was the same John Sweeney involved in Dominique's death. The man was later identified as the same John Sweeney. Dominique's brother Griffin later called the doctor's daughter and tried to convince her to call off the engagement. Sweeney accused the Dunns of harassing him and later changed his name. In interviews, Dominic Dunn said that, for a time, he employed the services of private investigator Anthony Pellicino to follow and report on Sweeney's whereabouts and actions. According to Dunn's father, Pellicino reported that Sweeney had moved to the Pacific Northwest and had changed his name to John Morrow. Dunn's father said that he had later decided that he no longer wished to squander his life following Sweeney and therefore discontinued any attempts to keep tabs on him. Dominic Dunn died on August 26, 2009. Dominique Dunn's murder is a clear-cut case of domestic violence. It shows all the telltale signs. Violent physical altercations, followed by reconciliation, followed by violent altercations, and so on. I believe that on the night of October 30th, John Sweeney went to Dominique Dunn's house in order to try to get her to reconcile their relationship. When he realized that this was not going to work, he made the decision that if he couldn't have her, than no one could. It was murder, plain and simple. The rulings of Judge Katz not to allow testimony from Sweeney's former girlfriend and family members of Dominique Dunn's I see as a grave miscarriage of justice. Also, the fact that he criticized the jury in their verdict should have gotten him disbarred. It is truly tragic that Dominique Dunn's life was snuffed out so early. The world will never know what kind of promising career the young actress would have had. If you, or anyone you know, is a victim of domestic violence, I urge you to get help. You can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or visit their website at www.thehotline.org. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Trucker Podcast Group. You can also join Age of Radio's Facebook group 
at Addicted to Podcasting. This is a group dedicated to the show hosts and fans of Age of Radio shows. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org slash truecrimetruckers slash. There you can browse the bazaar where you can purchase items from our wonderful sponsors as well as browse other shows on the Age of Radio Syndicate. Also, if you'd like to donate to the show and get yourself a podcast sticker, go to www.patreon.com slash truecrimetruckerspodcast. You can also find me on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks with another case to present. So until then, stay safe.